I became a Christian when I was about nine years old. I grew up in a home where God was talked about and believed in the idea that there was just something bigger, this, this guy upstairs who loved us and cared about us. I always believed that as far as I can remember. Um, but it was when I was nine when I realized that there was this person named Jesus and that he wanted to have a relationship with me. And uh, I spent uh, a week up at Keats camp and uh, a Christian camp that really kind of changed my life and, and my faith and made it something personal and real. Um, it was in a time of worship when I really just felt the spirit and that was different to me. And that to me was thus something different about who Jesus was and what he wanted for me and what being in a relationship with him was about. Um, my whole life, God's grace and sovereignty has been a huge theme, but um, it really became evident when I became an alcoholic and uh, went through a really hard time of, of trying to decide was alcohol something that I could control or was it only something that was controlling me? And uh, it was through a really difficult experience. Um, I crashed, I, I drove drunk and I crashed my car. And uh, that was a huge wake up call and I realized I needed to stop doing this. This is something I couldn't touch anymore. Um, and then I stayed sober for a couple of years, which was great and it wasn't a problem. Uh, I thought I'd become more mature, more adult, stronger maybe and decided that I should, I sh I should be able to manage this thing. So I, I picked up alcohol again and it quickly became evident that it was a huge problem that the problem wasn't me being young or immature, but it was that I was an alcoholic and it was a forever thing. Um, through many more difficult situations, it became really evident that I needed to quit that again. Um, for me, I, I, in thinking about doing this and, and sharing this story, what really became evident was that God is not a God of second chances. He doesn't give chances. He just gives grace and grace covers everything. It's so much different than the idea that if you fail a few times, I'll forgive you, but after this many, then we have a real problem. Well, I failed that many and continue to fail, but even though I do that, His overarching grace just covers everything. Before I even did those stupid things and made those stupid decisions, I was forgiven for them. And that's why God's grace is so huge for me. Um, I see it every day. Every day I wake up, I just thank Him that I made it through those situations, basically unscathed. Um, and His forgiveness is huge in that. So that's kind of where God's grace is seen in a huge way flowing through my life. It, it makes everything different, it makes everything new, it makes every day new. Many thanks to Ryan, who is a member of our North Shore campus. He actually helps oversee the worship over in the North Shore uh, for sharing his story with us via video. Good man. Um, great to have you, uh, Westside. Welcome here for guests with us. Special welcome to you. My name is Norm, one of the pastors here at Westside. We are in the midst of a 
story series. It's really a theme that's weaving its way throughout the whole ministry. Chad talked a little bit about that in his welcome to us. Uh, We began this series last week by looking at the story of Rahab and also hearing Nicole's story, who's a part of Westside. And that is our goal in this. We're going to go through 12 Old Testament stories, six men, six women. We're going to look back at their stories, but woven in that as well are the telling of 12 Westside stories, bringing all 24 of these together, both both past and present, and showing how God intersects our stories and make sense of them. Doesn't diminish them, but make sense of them, using them to tell the grander and more cosmic story, that being his story. So we're doing that. We looked again last week at Rahab, and we're going to continue on with that this week as well. I also want to pray with you before we do that, but before I, before I pray, uh, just another quick couple of plugs. Just got to take care of some housekeeping items. One is men, you need to sign up for a men's retreat. If you're planning on coming, please get your stuff in. And then a special announcement or an ask. We have uh, women's ministry stuff that goes on every week. A lot of women's Bible studies during the day. And Many, many kids that need to be babysat, and it has become a crisis. We need babysitters. It's a paid gig, and all the saltines you can eat along with it, and we need them. It's come to such a place where we're actually having to cancel some of the studies because the kids can't be taken care of. So if you have some time, energy, desire, please contact us so those ladies can continue meeting. That would be great. All right? All right. Let me pray. Good to have you here. Let's pray together. Father, it is good to be here, and I thank you for this place. Thank you for this time. I thank you for this allowance, and we come here with a great desire in the midst of what we're talking about in these months for you to invade our lives as well, to hijack them, invade them, intersect in them and help us make sense of them, but not only make sense of them, help us to realize that we too are being raised up for a bigger, for a bigger reason, a bigger reason that points to you, a bigger reason that, um, that you are calling us to, to bring glory to your name, to bring glory to your fame, and to bring glory and pointing others to the grandness of your story. So I pray that I would make sense of that through your word today. For those who maybe are wondering, what does that mean? Help me understand that. So I pray today as we look at another story from the Old Testament that you would help me in the proclaiming of it, to make sense of it, so that we would all, all of us, regardless of where we're starting right now, be furthered along in our story and ultimately a story that can have a great ending. I pray for that. With all of my heart, I pray for that. In the great name of Jesus, amen. One of the things that I've struggled with, and perhaps you've shared the same struggle, is the question of how God uses people with such blatantly flawed aspects of their life, being a part of them, and yet uses these blatantly flawed people to lead powerful ministries, do powerful things. Uh, I'm not saying that God can only use perfect people, for if that were the case, who among us would be deemed usable? And nor am I saying that we don't all have imperfections. I'm talking instead about those people who whose faults are so visible that you wonder a couple of different things perhaps. How can someone so godly and so powerful have such a fault or 
If he or she is so spirit-filled, how is it that that same spirit can't get a hold of that fall? Those are the kind of individuals that I'm talking about. As we go on in this story series today, I present to you Samson. Samson is an individual that... One of the great advantages of talking about Samson is most of us have a working knowledge of his life. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you know something about the man. He's that long-haired guy, right? That Samson, like super strong. Samson, that guy. Uh, like the ladies, Samson, that guy. Super flawed, like the ladies. Long hair, lots of flaws, like I said. That Samson. We know a little bit about Delilah, right? Delilah, Samson, they're good enough for movies. We've seen them in movies. In fact, one of the great gifts of archaeology is we actually have a depiction of Samson that has come to us. Let me show you it on the screen. There it is. There he is. It's amazing the preservation over that period of time. Samson, ah, Fabio. Fabio, we love Flabio, not Flabio, that's me, Fabio, (laughs) Samson. So most of us, like I said, we have a working knowledge of the man, but here's what you may not know. Samson, in spite of the possible fanfare that surrounds him, is one of the most difficult men in the Old Testament to like. His personality and the things that he does, they're really hard to look at and not have some distaste for the man. He was defiant, he was vengeful, he was disobedient, he was cocksure, he was self-entitled, he was demanding, and he was a whoremonger. All coming out of this overarching and great pride that was his. Very, very pride-filled that gets fleshed out and manifested in so many different ways. In fact, in your storybook, that was the one word that we used to encapsulate his life. Pride. He was a pride-filled individual, and yet, here's the problem or the dilemma He is one of those individuals that is included with many other heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. He's part of that group. So with all of this in mind, what I want you to do is I want you to take your Bibles out, turn with me to Jude chapter 13. Jude chapter 13, which from Jude 13 to 16 encompasses the life of Samson. Four chapters we're going to look at today. Obviously, we can't look at all of them in great detail. But four chapters, we're going to do more of a flyover uh, in their regard, trying to get a sense of this man. And what I want you to grasp as we walk through them and to help me teach them and to help you to remember what I teach, I'm going to focus on three different features that come out of these four chapters that arise out of Samson's life. What are these three features if you're keeping and taking notes? We're going to first look at that pride of Samson. Specifically, we're going to laser in on it. How does that pride manifest itself? Then we're going to look at the perplexity of Samson. He's a perplexing individual. I've given you a taste of why that is. This this pride-filled man is included with the great heroes of faith. And then we're going to ask the obvious question that comes out of those two things, that being what's the purpose of his life? So pride, perplexity, and purpose. And if that seems too simple and neatly packed, for you, because life is more simply than uh, more difficult, I should say, more perplexing than a simple alliteration. I put it this way to help you remember, but also because his life necessitates that we look at those three. Okay, 
So let's take a look at it. Like I said, Judges chapter 13 is beginning point for us. Before I look at specific verses with you, I want to give you a bit of a historical context as we drop right down, smack in the dab, uh, in the dab, in dab, in the what? In the dab? Smack dab in the middle of Judges. (laughs) Here we go. This is what you need to know. When we get to this period of Israel's history and hit Judges chapter 13, we are at an extremely low point. Things have gone from bad to worse. This is the bottom. This is the cellar. It's really depicted in uh, John MacArthur's statement coming out of one of his, his, um, his books, uh, on the topic of Judges, one of his commentaries, he writes, Judges is a tragic sequel to Joshua. In Joshua, the people were obedient to God in conquering the land. We looked at that last week. Joshua and the story of Rahab coming in through Jericho. In Judges, however, they were disobedient, idolatrous, and often defeated. The situation that takes place leading up to the judges is that when the people of God went into Canaan, they didn't follow through in their totality on what God had instructed them to do. And that was rid the whole country of the enemies in it. They didn't do that in totality. They allowed for some exception. And what took place as they became Canaanized? The influence of their culture, their people, had a greater influence on the people of God than the people of God in regards to them. What did it get fleshed out like? What did they do? Well, they turned to the idols of the Canaanites. They intermarried with the Canaanites. They didn't listen to the judges whom God raised up to lead them. And when a judge died, they turned away from God even further. This is summed up in Judges chapter 2, where we read in verse 19, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. The very last verse of the book of Judges really wraps up neatly and nicely, but tragically what led to this period of time for the Israelites when it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I would suggest to us, as we go into Judges 13 to 16, that that is the case for us today. If if you had to pick a statement that really wraps up our culture, it's that. People doing what is right in their eyes. It's what I've talked about before as the greatest aspect of what's taking place in our culture today is the idol of self. We have raised up the idol of self, and as long as it is right in our eyes, we're good, and people are good with it. For we've got to take care of ourselves, right? We've got to do what's best for us, right? Everybody agrees with that in our culture. So this, being written thousands of years ago, has much relevance to us today. So let's take a look at Samson's life in particular, get a sense of him, As we arrive into chapter 13, things have gone only from bad to worse, as verse 1 explains. Put your pretty eyes in verse 1 where we read there. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So things are carrying on. But here's what takes place next. 
So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. That's where we find ourselves. They've been overthrown by the enemy, by the Philistines, a horrific people group at this time. And yet, in the midst of Israel's defiance and their disobedience and this out-of-control spiral that has resulted in this Philistine overthrow, a promise is given in verse 5 that gives us this glimpse that perhaps some good is coming. Take a look at verse 5. We read, For behold... You shall conceive and bear a son. This is the angel of the Lord coming to Samson's mom. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb. I'll come back to that. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Another judge is coming who will stand out as unique in many ways from other judges. And like we see here in verse 5, he will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines who have come in and overthrown them. The one being raised up is none other than Samson. Here seems uh, some things to note about Samson just coming out of chapter 13 as we do a flyover of his life. The first is his birth was miraculous. Take a look at verse 3. We read, and the angel of the Lord, and if you continue, and I hope you did this week in your reading going through these chapters, this angel of the Lord, I would argue, is in fact a pre-incarnate Christ having come visited the parents of Samson. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. It's a miraculous birth of sorts that reminds us of other miraculous births in the Bible, like Sarah's with Isaac, like Hannah's with Samuel, like Elizabeth with John, John the Baptist, and obviously and most significantly, it reminds us of Mary and Jesus. So that's the first thing that you need to note about Samson in chapter 13. Here's a second. He was to be a Nazarite. Let me read verses 4 and the first part of verse 5. Therefore, The instruction to the mom, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. What's a Nazarite? Hebrew word meaning to separate. Uh, It was normally um, a temporal call. It was a setting apart for God. A unique dedication And it was outwardly signified in three different ways. One is no drinking of alcohol. The second was no touching of the dead or things that had been defiled. And then thirdly, no cutting of the hair. Why these three? Well, they serve symbolically. No wine to signify sobriety. No razors to signify submission. And no touching of the dead to signify separation from any and everything that is in that is unclean. Keep these three in mind as we continue on through these chapters. Here's a third thing that we need to note about Samson's life in chapter 13, and that was he was God-blessed and he was spirit-filled. Can't miss this. We get a sense of this already, but just look at the last couple of verses in chapter 13 where we, we read there. And the woman bore a son and called him Samson. It's a word that means little son. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. 
So he was a man blessed. He was a man spirit filled. And we see that right from the outset. That's what we get in chapter 13. This is all good so far. Chapter 13 is an excellent chapter. Many great things go on, but before the ink is even dry in chapter 13, things turn immediately poor and bad and horrific in chapter 14, which introduces us to the first feature that arises from his story that we need to address this morning, and that is the pride of Samson. We need to get it because it's all over these next three chapters. How does the pride of Samson show itself? There are many ways in these three chapters. Let me highlight just six of them really quickly. Here's the first, his disobedience. I said chapter 13, good. Chapter 14 goes poor. Look at the first couple of verses. It begins this way. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. The Philistines were the enemy, uncircumcised, idol-worshiping enemy and overthrowers of the people of God. And yet Samson chooses to ignore the God-given prohibition against marrying the enemy, marrying a Gentile, goes against that and seeks a wife from amongst them. So the first thing that we need to note is his disobedience. The second thing that we need to note is his dishonor. We see this in verse 3. His parents, like good parents, try to intercede and stop what he wants to do. Look at verse 3. But his father and mother said to Samson, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives? Which is kind of creepy. I think that needs some unpacking that we're not going to give time to today. Or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Meaning they're not covenant people. They don't walk with God. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Remember how we summed up judges? They all did what was right in their eyes. Samson's a microcosm of that. The only difference is he's a judge. He's been raised up to lead this people. But he is doing the exact same thing. He is doing what is right in his own eyes. And in that, he is disobedient to what his parents know is best. And he dishonors them. The third thing that we see as far as the fleshing out of his pride is his deceit. Very deceitful man, especially in chapter 14. The deceit of Salmon as it... Salmon. Salmon. That was that dude last week. Remember that? Samson as it often is with us, isn't shown in what he said, but what, in what he didn't. Uh, let me explain this. In verses 5 to 9, there's this event that takes place where Samson is on his travels and a lion rushes upon him. And in the great strength that he has, he kills the lion with his bare hands. He goes back and a little bit later he begins the journey again, this time with his parents and others. And lo and behold, in this carcass of this dead lion, a bunch of bees have come in and and they, they put together a nest where there's a bunch of honey in the carcass. Samson's hungry. So he reaches in, grabs some honey, and he eats it. Mmm, this is great, fantastic. He gives some to his parents as well. 
so they can eat their refresh. But take a look at what takes place in verse 9 at the very end of that particular scene and note what happens. We read in verse 9, he scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Why not? Why didn't he? Well, because Samson had just broken one of his Nazarite vows. By touching that which was unclean and even eating something from it, it won't be the last time that he breaks a vow. Which leads to another act of pride that comes out of Samson in chapter 14 as well. And that is his defilement. Samson ends up marrying that Philistine that he wants to marry that looks right in his eyes. And we read in verse 12 of chapter 14 that a traditional seven-day wedding feast takes place. And it was held there. What you need to know about this wedding feast is that in the original language, in the Hebrew language, the word for this feast literally means time of drinking. All signs, as you read, point to Samson being a willing participant. And by so doing, he breaks another of his Nazarite vows. But I also want you to notice that it was while Samson is in the midst of this seven-day feast that he gives a riddle that evidence, evidence is not a brokenness over what he did with the lion, but a boasting of it. Take a look at verse 14. Verse 14, he's at this party seven days just partying with all of these Philistines. He's come from this event where he's taken the honey. He gets there, not broken, and he makes he makes this statement in a riddle form. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Who's the eater? The lion. Out of the lion came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Out of the strong, the lion came something sweet. Again, the honey. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. Again, instead of being broken over what he did in his, in his defilement, in the breaking of his vows, he's boasting about it. He's boasting about it. Pride-filled, not broken at all. Have you ever heard a testimony from someone that seemed more proud about their past than what God was doing in their life now? Not broken over their past, but almost raising it up on how bad they were. We see a snippet of that here in Samson's life in this seven-day feast. His defilement is shown or shows his pride. Here, here's another, the fifth of six, that I'll highlight about the pride of Samson. It's shown in his debauchery. Almost as an aside, as we get to chapter 16, and you want to look at chapter 16, verse 1, we read there that God's Nazarite judge, chosen and called to begin freeing his people, he went to Gaza in verse 1, where we read, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Things going again from bad to worse. And finally, we move from disobedience, dishonor, deceit, defilement, debauchery to another that surfaces showing the pride of Samson and that is Delilah. We're introduced to Delilah in chapter 16 as well. She is the third of the Philistine women that Samson hooks up with but there's a difference here. Samson loves Delilah. He loves Delilah. 
Delilah, however, loved money more than Samson. And what we read in that account in chapter 16, and we'll hit it in greater detail, is that after being bribed with more silver than she could have ever hoped for, she discovers the source behind Samson's strength, his long hair, which she quickly cuts, completing the breaking of Samson's three Nazarite vows. One final thing to note about the pride of Samson. As we read earlier, in chapter 13, even before he was born, Samson was set aside and called to begin setting the people of Israel free from the Philistines. Does he do this? In fact, if you read all the chapters, all four chapters, he does that all over the place. He, he destroys 30 Philistines, kills them in chapter 14. He kills some more in chapter 14. He kills many more, thousands in chapter 15. And then thousands upon thousands in chapter 16. He is doing what God has raised him to do, freeing his people from the enemy. However, there's an event that takes place where he has killed a number of Philistines. In fact, he's destroyed a bunch of their crops. And the Philistines are ticked. And remember, the Philistines, they're ruling over the people of God, the Israelites. And so a bunch of Philistines come to the people of God, to some of their leaders, and they go, what the heck, man? What are you doing with this guy, Samson? He's destroying things. He's killing off a bunch of our people, and the people of God are ticked now at Samson. And they confront him. How many did they bring to confront him? 3,000. To confront Samson. That's a big group of people. Kind of depicts on how strong Samson is and how fearful they were of him. And they asked him the question, what are you doing, man? You're, you're causing problems for me, for us, in what you're doing. Listen to what Samson says in his response. And you can see it in chapter 15, verse 11 in the first part. Or excuse me, the second part where he responds, as they did to me. So have I done to them. In other words, Samson was more motivated by revenge than devotion and commitment to God. What do his people do in turn at the end of chapter 15? His own people tie him up and hand him over to the enemy. Tough guy to like. In spite of the sweet hair, tough guy to like which actually leads us smack into the second feature of his story that demands to be addressed, and that is the perplexity of Samson. See, the perplexity of Samson comes because not only does God involve himself in his life, but he blesses and empowers much of it. Let me prove it to you. One of the things that I already highlighted is what we see in chapter 13. His birth was miraculous. The angel of God comes and visits and affirms him. In chapter 13, like we saw at the end of the chapter, his life is spirit-filled. He is blessed by God. And then as you look into chapter 14, we read this in verse 6, that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat, which I guess is a lot easier if you ever need to. Start with a goat, I guess. We also see this in chapter, same chapter, verse 19, chapter 14, verse 19. We read there, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him again. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town, took their spoil, gave the garments to those who had, he had told the riddle. 
And although we aren't told specifically, I think we can assume that the same takes place in chapter 15, verse 8, that allows Samson the empowerment to slaughter many there. For we read just a couple of verses later in chapter 15, verse 14, just take a look at it one more time, that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him again and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. And then notice in chapter 15, verse 18, after destroying a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, we read in that verse, he was very thirsty And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And what does God do? Look at the next verse. And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he was revived. A cool drink restoring Samson just in time for him to get to the brothel. What the heck? I mean, how do we make sense of this? This is perplexing. How do we make sense of all of this? How can someone so flawed, and not in small ways either, be so used by God in such a dramatic and important fashion? That question leads to the third and final question that needs to be addressed coming out of his life and story, and that is the purpose of Samson. What's his purpose? What redeeming quality does he bring? What service does he provide? What role does he serve? Let me suggest four for us this morning as we go into this last section. Here's the first. He serves as a reminder that God is sovereignly in control. See, the story of Samson reminds us of the larger story that God is writing One that doesn't rest on ours, but uses ours for a greater purpose. Not to our story's diminishment, as I said in my intro, but to a purposeful understanding of it. God has promised that Israel would be delivered from the Philistines by way of Samson. And they were, in part, even if it meant that God used Samson's disobedience to realize it. For example, just to prove it to you and to make you a little more uncomfortable. So I know when I say statements like that, people get uncomfortable. What do you mean God is using disobedience to carry out what he promised? Go back to chapter 14 if you don't mind. Remember that marriage? Get me a Philistine woman. Don't do it. Get her for me. She gets married to him. He marries her. Take a look at what we read in verse 4. Remember that was a disobedient act and it was a dishonoring act. But look at verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. Huh. For he, and I would argue the he there is not Samson, it's the Lord. He was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. But regardless of whether that is the Lord or Samson, ultimately it was the Lord, for he used Samson's disobedience to begin the redeeming story that he was writing. Does God use law-breaking and lawlessness to carry out his bigger story?
All you need for an answer is to look at the cross. Was the cross in the mind of God, was was it his purpose and will? Before the foundations of the earth, it was his purpose and will. Did he use lawless men, sinful men, to carry out his purpose and plan? Yeah. Lawless men killed Jesus. Sinful men killed Jesus. And in their killing of Jesus was grace availed to them for their sin and lawlessness that led to the killing of Jesus. Who limits Satan in his activity with Job? Who brings up Job's name to Satan? God. You ever consider Job? Yeah. Big hedge of protection around him. Well, go at it. Just don't take his life. Who's limiting? How about in our study of the book of Habakkuk? Habakkuk comes to God. God, how come you ain't doing anything with the Israelites? They're disobeying you. God says, well, I'm up to something. I'm actually going to raise the Chaldeans, your enemy, those hated Chaldeans. What they're going to do is I'm going to bring them in. They're going to bring judgment, my judgment on my people. Habakkuk goes, what the heck? What do you mean you're doing that? God says, I'm not done yet. In fact, what I'm going to do after that, after using the Chaldeans to bring judgment on Israel, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to judge the Chaldeans for the mayhem they just brought on Israel. Huh. You ever get the sense that God is God and we are not? We want this to be, actually, that God is sovereign over all things, all things, including evil and sinfulness and lawlessness. We want it, and one of the reasons why we want it, it's the only assurance that we have that we will not be tempted beyond our ability to endure, as we're promised in 1 Corinthians 10.13. How can we have that assurance? Because there's somebody who is sovereign over it. Then in the same way with Job says, stop here, he does that today through his intercession work of Jesus. Stop. God is sovereign. God is supreme. We want it to be. It's shown here in Samson's life as well, and it's one of the purposes that his story serves. In this discussion, however, it is very important to understand that God's sovereignty does not make God the author of Samson's sin. The bad moral choice here belongs to Samson. He made this choice freely, without coercion and without force. But God was nonetheless in complete control over these events. As he always is. Working, as we read in Ephesians 1-3, all things according to the counsel of his will. How many things? All things. Only good things? All things. Not bad things? All things. To the purpose of his will. The fact that God can bring good even out of evil and use human wickedness to advance his own perfect plan doesn't mean God approves of the the wickedness. Uh, We're going to get to the story of Joseph in a, a few weeks. The great culminating event in Joseph's story takes place in Genesis 50 where his brothers come to Joseph and Joseph reveals himself to them and they're freaking out thinking that this guy's going to destroy them for what they did to him. Joseph makes that very, very important statement. What you intended for evil, God intended it for good. Same words. You had this intention. 
God had this intention using your intention and bringing about good. And what was the good? The saving of many people. Joseph is a foreshadowing of Jesus. You intended that for evil. God intended that for good and used your evil to bring about the saving of many lives. We want this to be. It has to be. It's the only hope that we have. Samson's story points this out and reveals, and this is one of the purposes for it. Here's a a second that we need to see what role his story serves, and that is he serves as an example of faith, which I know for some of us, it's tough to grasp that. But regardless of our possible distaste of Samson, the Holy Spirit, through the writer of Hebrews, includes him in that hall of faith. He he writes this in Hebrews 11, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms enforce justice, obtain promises, and stop the mouths of lions. In fact, got some honey out of one of them. Samson, he's a model and an example of faith. Interestingly, in the full disclosure of the scriptures, a man as physically strong as Samson wasn't commended for his strength. He was commended for his faith. It's interesting. Was Samson a consistent model of faith and virtue? Of course not. We've looked at his story, at least in part, but he did at times evidence faith with the most obvious example coming at the end of his life, which we will get to shortly. Here's a third thing that his story serves for us. He serves as a reminder of our greatest need and who the ultimate hero of this story is. Samson, the deliverer, needed a deliverer. And as one states it, it was ultimately God who was doing the delivering. And a depressing cycle of rebellion and rescue in the book of Judges only underscores the fact that there needs to be an ultimate divine rescue from the source of that rebellion. A man who gave in to the lust of his eyes in his choice of a wife and the lust of the flesh in the eating of the defiled honey and to the boastful boastful pride of life in his arrogance and self-entitlement, needed a savior and west side, so too do we. And that's the point. And that's one of the reasons why I love the Bible, and you should too. See, one of the greatest things about the Bible is it doesn't try to whitewash the people in it. That's the beautiful part of it. That's why when you ever hear somebody criticize things in the Bible, especially pointing back to the Old Testament, go, well, if you're going to be people of the Bible, you're going to go back to that, and you don't want to go back to that. I mean, look at your history, to which we should respond. Yeah, that's why we need Jesus. They're not heroes, man. Most of them are nut jobs, at best. So too are we. The whole thing points to Jesus and why we need Jesus. And what happens when we do what is right in our own eyes? We see that in Samson's life here. No need to gloss over Samson's sin because the point of his story is to glorify God, not Samson. When we read of Samson's feats of strength, we're not supposed to marvel at the strength of a man, 
We're supposed to glorify God who is the source of that strength. You know what's interesting and one of the things that I think is really relevant and demands to be asked coming out of Samson's life for us in 2014 is Samson was a great man of physical strength but great moral weaknesses. And the question that comes out of that for us is what's most important to you? Status, power, position, or moral uprightness, integrity, and walking closely with your God. See, Samson is us. When we read about Samson's moral failures, the lesson we're supposed to draw is not primarily a lesson about human failures, but the wonder of God's grace and the necessity for it. A grace which is capable of winning unimaginable victory in the midst of the most crushing kind of defeat. The same grace that Ryan talked about in his testimony and the sharing of his story. But we also can't miss the warning in the midst of Samson's life as well. We need to be guarded against compromise and syncretism and moral failure. And one of the things that we dupe ourselves in regards to this is we, we, determine, we determine the size of our compromises as whether our hearts are good or not in allowing us to go through with them. In other words, we look at the compromise and go, that's not a big deal when we don't evaluate the heart behind it, which is what God looks at. He doesn't look at the size of the compromise. Eating honey, big deal. It's the heart behind it. We have a lot of things that we go, big deal. And we miss the heart. And we can't miss the example in here and the call for us to evaluate ourselves in light of it. Here's the last way the story of Samson serves us. He serves as a foreshadowing of Christ. Huh? You mean the Antichrist? No, I mean Christ. How does Samson serve as a foreshadowing of Christ? In what way? Well, in his birth, it was miraculous. In his call, what was his call? He was to be a deliverer. In his office, he was a judge, pointing ahead to the judge of judges, Jesus himself. In his empowerment, how was he empowered? His spirit filled. How was Jesus empowered? Well, he's just Jesus. No, Jesus was empowered by the same spirit. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus declared at the beginning of his ministry, the spirit of the Lord ascended upon him, driving him out to the wilderness. And finally, he points ahead to Christ in his death. A death journey for Samson that begins with the betrayal of a lover for silver. And it continues on in verse 18 of chapter 16. Let me read it with you. It begins this way. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, 
She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man who had had him shaven, uh, have him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze, with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But, there, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to gag on their God and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And then when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many for, of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. And Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once. Oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson, Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all of his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and the dead, and upon all the people who were in it, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. One of the things that I have highlighted much over the years in this ministry is that the appointed roles of God's servants in the Old Testament point ahead to their fulfillment in God's final and perfect servant, Jesus. They have a symbolic function a foreshadowing function, providing a key to the way which the historical stories of the Old Testament foreshadow the work of Jesus. You see, Westside, like Samson, Jesus shows how God can use one man empowered by the Spirit to bring salvation to his people and destruction to his enemies. And like Samson, Jesus was bound by the leaders of his own people, as we saw, and handed over to the Gentile oppressors. His own people handed him over. And like Samson, Jesus was mocked as helpless, not blinded to be sure, but blindfolded. He was made the sport of his captors. And like Samson, Jesus, the, the better deliverer and judge, willingly gave up his life and in his death with his arms, one to his left and one to his right, like Samson, brought forth a deliverance that exceeded the deliverance of his life. Samson, pointing ahead to what would be realized in Jesus, 
reminds us that the true strength of God isn't shown in the feats of a strong man, but in the pierced and bound hands of Jesus, our deliverer. That's the purpose his story serves. It is wrapped up in a quote that will close our time this morning. Samson is himself an image of what all of us are tempted to be, set apart for service to God, yet fatally attracted to the culture around us. He reminds us that a better deliverer, a better judge, a better savior was needed. His story, like all of the Old Testament, aims us towards Jesus. One last thing. Doesn't Samson's call on the brink of death in verse 28 of remember me remind us too of the thief on the cross and that the grace of God's salvation is even available and offered to us at that point. In this last act of faithful crying out, God graces upon him this wonderful salvation and rescue. Again, pointing ahead to that salvation and grace that is offered to us today, regardless of all the crap and garbage in our stories. What a great story. But a great story only because of the spotlight that it focuses on the great story of God. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you that in your production of your word that you have included the story of Samson. I thank you for teaching us today for as I pray often, you not only have produced and God breathed in the production of your word, you God breathed in its proclamation too. And I thank you for the things you've taught and revealed to us in the telling and sharing of it today. I give you praise for that. But it's not enough just to be informed you call us to transformation. You want to transform us. You want to take our stories and redeem them like you did even at the final hour, the final moments with Samson. You offer that to us today. So I pray, Father, through your spirit today that you would just overwhelm this time of response and that those that have in their past stories of crud and garbage, that they would receive the grace that is ours all because of what you, Jesus, did for them on the cross. I pray that that takes place. I pray for that. I pray for those that are trying to live their own life in their own strength, realizing that it's not in our strength that offers and avails salvation. It's in the bound and pierced hands of Jesus. So I pray that that would take place, that our cry would be, remember me as well. I pray for those of us who do know you. I pray that we would get a glimpse of how grand you how grand the plan you have for us. For we all have the opportunity to bring glory to you, God, through how we live our lives and what we do with this life that you have given us. So I pray that we would be encouraged in this as well. For the honor and glory of your name and for our joy, I pray. Amen.